the most important issues facing us are not public policy issues, but they're the question of what our fundamental political ideology is. Are we a country that allows for people to have conversations, to debate, that believes in scientific inquiry? Or are we a country that's going to embrace sort of whatever radical dogmas come from wherever they come? From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with David Bernstein, founder and CEO of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and author of Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. David is a passionate advocate for the free expression of ideas. He's the past president and CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs and a former executive director of the David Project. David was kind enough to join me in a spirited conversation about cancer culture, to what extent cancer culture exists, and its impact in the Jewish community. We also analyzed whether forces on the left or the right are a greater threat to the Jewish people. Ultimately, we realized that the real danger is illiberalism, whatever it comes from. Take a listen. David, I um, read your very thought-provoking book, Woke Antisemitism, and we want to talk about it. But before trying not to pull a Beth Mandel here, <laughs> can you <laughs> can you define woke for me? Yeah, boy, I felt bad for her when she uh, couldn't muster the words. Um, so what do oh, I wait, mean? Wait, 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 wait. Is it is it that she couldn't muster the word? Or is it that really there is a problem with a term or a word that is not being properly defined and it's being used freely as a... as a? It is being freely used as a cudgel by many, but that doesn't mean it's not being properly defined by some. So I'm right. going to try my best and I'm going to just describe what I mean by the term. Right. So what I mean by woke ideology are two fundamental tenets. First, that oppression and bias are not just a matter of one's personal attitudes or opinions or prejudices, but they're embedded and ingrained in the very structures and systems of society. They're in the air that we breathe. And the second tenet is that only those with lived experience of that oppression are able to see it and therefore define it for the rest of society. And that can sometimes be used as a cudgel itself. It can be used to say that um, you don't have standing to define racism or to disagree with somebody's lived experience on racism. And I think that can be extremely illiberal. Now, both of those things can be true, by the way. It can right. be true that oppression is ingrained in society. And I think we have plenty of examples of that. I don't need to recount here, including examples where Jews have been on the receiving end of that oppression. And it also can be true that somebody's lived experience really does give them insight into into oppression that we should listen to. So we should listen to people who have experienced something, but it can't be the final word. No one has a monopoly 
on defining racism or prejudice or anything else. We live in a free society. So as a Jew who's experienced anti-Semitism, I would think you would want to hear me out on it. But I also know that there are other Jews who've had very different experiences of anti-Semitism and might have a different take on it. And I also know that there are other data points besides lived experience. Like the the Pew survey uh, did a study, I think it was in 2019, that said that American Jews are the most admired religious community in the country. So again, that's another data point that I have to factor in. Interesting. In my reading about that, I I got to defining woke as an ideology that has probably four main elements. One is sort of an idea of gender. I mean, I'm not in priority, right? An idea of gender like goes again to the point to your point of live experience. So the conscious that one may have of being a man or a woman is more important than biology. Two, critical race theory, like the idea that you have to look at race, at the difference of power between races. You can never talk of a universal human because race permeates, as you said, everything. Three, a theory of intersectionality, as Kimberly Crenshaw you know, wrote, like there's there's a convergence of uh, persecution, oppression, etc. And, and, and you need to always look at that. And then, you know, what you said about the lived experience, I take it a little further which is a whole epistemology of the point of view, meaning it goes to the idea that objective knowledge is impossible. Therefore, we only need to look at those lives experience. And it goes that knowledge is impossible because all science responds to the point of view of a dominant. So there's a radical critique of science there. Yes, I could not agree more. You know, is gender itself, the idea of gender, yes, it does emerge from post- modern thought, which is another way of talking about woke ideology. It is a product of postmodern thought. And I do think that um, that it does have some different dynamics in that conversation than the one on, on race and society. But again, I do think it falls under the same general umbrella. And I agree, by the way, that gender does matter. Like, I think that there are core insights that we get from postmodernism and that we get from even ideologues that I might disagree with in terms of how they pursue the conversation. Right. That, yeah. but, but I might, you know, intersectionality, for example, is a useful heuristic. I don't disagree that it's useful to think of it in that way. But what I do think is problematic is to insist that it's the only way of looking at the world. Right. It becomes like what Jonathan Heights calls cuckoo, not crazy, but it means like a cuckoo bird who takes over another bird's nest and kicks out all its eggs. I think that's what's happening in this conversation. Right. Actually, my respectful critique of your work is that there's no enough distinction between woke as such and sort of extreme wokeism that tries to weaponize all these ideas for sort of illiberal things. Because somebody can say, listen, ultimately, woke means being awakened to the injustices of society, a society that was sort of asleep and not seeing all these ways in which especially non-conforming people, black and brown people were were being oppressed. Why is it that bad? You know, yes, there is a pendular thing. Sometimes we go overboard, but ultimately what we're trying to do here is to really recalibrate, you know, something that's been wrong for centuries. Well, I think it's perfectly legitimate to try to recalibrate, to hear that side of the conversation, to learn more about the experiences of traditionally marginalized people. But that can't be the final word. And when people start to insist that it is and that I can't answer back or you can't answer back, 
that becomes a problem. That actually becomes almost another form of communication. It's illiberal. It becomes, in the words of Wesley Yang, a successor ideology to liberalism. It says, this is the only way of looking at the world, and I'm not going to allow you to have that space in that conversation. So if it's just about having a conversation about people's experiences, I'm, I welcome it. I think that's really an important discussion to have. But if it's about silencing everyone who disagrees with it, then I think that's a problem. And that's illiberal. And how do you know when you are in a good faith debate, you know, and when people are trying to you know, impose a certain ideology? I mean, in general, not just in that. Yeah. I try to do my best in, first of all, starting by erring on the side of good faith, assuming that people are acting in good faith. But I know that sometimes they're not. And I realize that they don't really want to have a conversation. They want to sort of perform for their Twitter followers or whoever else. And I still might hang on uh, in the hopes that the conversation will materialize. But I know pretty early whether the person really wants to have a discussion or really wants to make a public point. So walk us on how this ideology ends up being a risk and ending up being a a danger for Jews. Yeah, so I think it works in a few ways. Number one, it sort of lays out this very binary understanding of oppressed versus oppressor, um, that your identity is either a source of privilege or a source of oppression. And I think it's very easy when you have a Jewish community or an Asian community, by the way, or some other ethnic communities that succeed above the mean to see them as the oppressor. In fact, in many ways, the ideology conflates economic success with oppression or being an oppressor. And I think that really puts the Jewish community in a bad spot because the Jewish community has traditionally done very well in America and done very well in the West. And so we end up being viewed as complicit in white supremacy or white adjacent by many. Now, I realize that not everybody is trying to do that to an equal degree. And so it doesn't mean that there aren't moderates who might be a liberal in some ways, but aren't trying to, you know, portray Jews as the oppressors. But I think when you have a dogma, that dogma tends to beget more extreme forms of dogma. And we we shouldn't give in to the original dogma that says it's okay to link identity privilege. It's just too rigid. It leads to more and more extreme versions of itself. But, but let me give you a counterexample. You have a guy like Eric Ward, whom I interviewed for the podcast, who's like an amazing guy. And he he tell you, I'm proudly woke. And his whole ideology is really against anti-Semitism. He basically tells you, you can't have anti-Black racism without anti-Semitism. It's not a fatality. It's not a necessity that the woke ideology takes you to those places. No, but it does on the whole. You know, I think, yes, there are people who embrace aspects of what I would consider a dogma who still are very sensitive in, to the Jewish community and will make the yeah, argument. But he's not only sensitive, he he includes this into his theory. It's not that he says, oh, I feel for the Jews. A key part of his theoretical construct is that you can't have anti-Black racism without anti-Semitism. Yes, I understand. And it would be much better if that were the dominant strain in the ideological community. But I don't I don't necessarily think that's the case. And you have all these examples of the opposite. You know, for example, in Stanford at a psychiatric clinic, a, a, a psychiatrist named Ron Albacher wanted to discuss 
the Zoom bombing of a town hall meeting that took place that included Nazi swastikas. And mm-hmm. when he raised that up for concern, the DEI folks in the organization really silenced and, and accused him of decentering anti-Blackness. In other words, taking the spotlight off of the more important and salient form of racism that was present, which was anti-Black racism. Right. That's happened a lot. And so I worry that, you know, despite our best efforts, when you have an ideology that rigidly defines who the oppressed and the oppressors are, you sort of inexorably end up with Jews in a certain place. I have a problem with the ideology for other reasons than just it foments anti-Semitism. I think it short circuits the discussion in society. I think it often leads to really bad outcomes. So instead of actually investing resources in helping young black people, for example, become scientists, it tries to get perfect proportionality in the here and now in science. I just don't think that that works very well. I think it actually does the opposite of what it pretends to do. In that case of the science, it's actually even worse. It's going to tell you the science is in itself racist. Right. One of the criticisms that is leveled on this concern is that folks like you take one example that is extreme and it's not usual and they magnify it. So, you know, you're going to say, no, it happens a lot. Somebody's going to say, no, it's just three cases, whatever. Is there any research, any data that one can use to see how prevalent examples like the one you described is? Not yet. I, I would imagine you could construct studies. And I think I hope that they're eventually done where you look at the attitudes of for example, DEI professionals on a whole host of things, that might still be hard to sort of garner because I'm not sure all of them would acknowledge what their true views are. There have been so many cases of this, though, and it's not just one or two or three. We know of a bunch of them. Um, and so we see it as a trend, but it's also because it's of a piece with a larger trend. So, for example, you know, you could say, okay, my kids' school system, which in my case is Montgomery County Public Schools in Montgomery County, Maryland, 100,000 Jews live there, just went through an anti-racism audit. And you could say, well, okay, so they emphasize the recognizing and resisting systems of oppression. That's the language that they use. Well, what's wrong with that? And I could say maybe this is a moderate form of DEI, but it doesn't take long to discover that they're actually teaching something called white supremacy culture, which is Tima Okin's formulation that all of Western culture is fundamentally racist in a way, white supremacist, and that we have to sort of disrupt acts of whiteness and everything from being on time, for example, the idea of promptness and and the like. So because of that, those overarching frameworks that are in so much of this DEI, which is in corporations and organizations, nonprofits and the like, I'm susceptible to believing that some of the more extreme portrayals are not just rare occurrences. Right. What we talk about, there's things that are very difficult to quantify. And, and what you say about being in time as, as an Argentinian, who the cultural norm is always to start 15 minutes later. If you go there in time, they're going to tell you, why are you early? Even there, there could be a point. I mean, there are social norms that are a reflection of structures of power. Yeah. Like that's not in and of itself wrong. I mean, the question, I guess, is what conclusions or what action plans you take from that? Yeah, it's also not viewing all of Western culture or all American culture as fundamentally predicated on whiteness and therefore illegitimate, too. Right. So, yes, it can be that a workplace that has in it a norm that would penalize a young black man with dreadlocks is engaging in a kind of racism, a kind of 
cultural superiority that is racist in nature. But that doesn't mean that we should view it all as a function of, of racism. I just don't think that that's correct. And I think um, it actually harms the people. Again, it pretends to help. So, you know, is it does it do anybody any favors to tell um, a young minority kid from a disadvantaged background that uh, the system is completely rigged against them? I think not. And I think there are a lot of black parents who are very concerned that that's exactly what's happening. There's a thing here, I think. It is as though the main agreement, the base contract of modernism was, of liberal modernity, was to say, we're going to construct a neutral public square in order to have a society, a nation, a country of equal citizens. You know, what the French Revolution says, or the uh, American for that matter, is that we're going to move things like religion, sex, personal idiosyncrasies to the private realm. And we're going to build a public realm that is going to be, quote unquote, neutral. And in that public realm, we're going to try to be more uniform so that people can actually coexist. Mm -hmm. Now, that calls for a certain suppression of individuality and for a uniformization that it's going to, by definition, reflect a certain dominant paradigm. What I see now as part of, I don't know if it's part of wokeism or part of postmodern ideology, is the the right to unfettered self-expression. In other words, I don't want a neutral public square. I want a public square that allows me to bring my entire self and to not only express it, but celebrate it. And I'm wondering if that's not a recipe for permanent friction on society. Now, two things can be true. You can say the neutral public square of the 19th century was a reflection of a certain dominant culture and, you know, a bourgeois kind of white, whatever. And the alternative that is being proposed is also destructive. So it can be amended. Look, um, I think it's not just a neutral public square. I think that there were certain values that undergird democracy that we want to lift up in the public conversation. You know, that the idea that, you know, schools, for example, were not just a matter of teaching kids reading, writing and arithmetic. They were to to impart democratic values in a generation so that they can be stewards of our democracy. So I do think that we're not looking for perfect neutrality here, but we have to find a balance between those values and the ability for people to agree disagreeably. We have to allow for pluralism. And um, again, you know, American history is rife with examples of stifling pluralism. So it's not like wokeism is the first threat to ever emerge. I mean, we obviously have very significant threats to liberal ideals coming from the political right, but it is a threat. And it is taken over many institutions. I mean, I'm averse to using the word captured institutions. It sounds very conspiratorial to me, but I don't think it's inaccurate in many cases. Yeah. That, you know, all of a sudden you see an organization that was once known for sort of its core liberal values, that is that openness to varying ideas, shut down that conversation and not even be able to talk about these issues around race and gender and the like. So I do think that that's a sign of, of institutional capture. And I don't think that that's healthy for our democracy and our liberal conversations in society that allow us to live together peacefully. So I think we have to restore some of what we had before, but understand that, of course, we have to then infuse the conversation with discussions of economic deprivation, of of historic oppression and so forth, and be open to those narratives in a way that we might not have in the past.
we're going to get back to all these issues. I think it's a fascinating conversation. But before we continue, I wanted you to talk a little bit about yourself. What what brought you to this area of work? Uh, I mean, you you had a heterogeneous uh, background. So talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So I would say, first of all, that I'm probably a classical liberal and a political liberal. I'm somebody who generally supports human rights, reproductive rights, immigrant rights, uh, separation of church and state, ending mass incarceration and so forth. Those are political ideas that have been with me for many, many years. You actually work a lot yeah. on criminal justice, criminal justice. Form, right? Yeah. And that was that was actually a passion that I brought to my last job position. I started by saying this is one of the most important issues in public life. The fact that, you know, more than two million people are incarcerated in this country, much higher than in other countries. I thought that was a problem. And there were injustices that were disproportionately affecting the Black community. And I thought that was something that we had to look into deeply and make some changes to our public policy. But I also have always been a classical liberal in the sense that um, I believed in the free and open exchange of ideas. I believed in free speech. You know, I watched the movie Skokie with my parents when I was in eighth grade, which was about how the Nazis petitioned to march in Skokie and how Jewish lawyers from the ACLU defended their right to speak. And, and that was a deeply held value. I believe that for our country to have free speech, we had to defend even the most hideous exemplars of it. And that was certainly the neo-Nazis in Skokie. So that was sort of my political orientation. I'm also uh, born of, of an Iraqi Jewish family that believed that, you know, the streets were paved of gold in this country. And that was yeah. deeply ingrained in my political ideals as well. And I still have that sense that America, for all its faults, is a very important nation in the world and that we shouldn't lose that in our correction as the pendulum swings. Uh, so that said, I, I very early on, I started having concerns about this ideology. I remember being at a multicultural event when I was at the American Jewish Committee, in which the event organizer said that racism equals prejudice plus power. And that was the first time I heard that. I think that was in 1998 or 1999. And I thought to myself, wow, that's interesting. So that means that a group that is perceived as being powerful cannot really be a victim. And does that mean that a group that's perceived as being a victim cannot be a victimizer? And I wrote about it in 2002 or 2003 in a column where, that I could have written today. So anybody who thinks that, you know, this is something that's a recent phenomenon for me hasn't really looked back and some of the other things that I've, I've written, even when I was in my last job as heading the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, there were things that I had written, I think that would have showed that I had concerns about the nature of the discourse. And, and, I, and I wrote that in memos to my American Jewish Committee colleagues as well in the early 2000s. So this goes way back. My first day on the job at the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, I came out with an op-ed that expressed concern about intersectionality. And it caused a huge firestorm. There was something like eight opinion pieces written to criticize it. And it wasn't that I disagreed with the idea that minorities could face double jeopardy from different kinds of oppression. It's just that I saw it as becoming a source of ideological friction for the Jewish community and saw groups like sex from, violence groups join. From join Ferguson to Palestine kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But here's something that, you know, on the face of it could be seen as a contradiction. You're, you're basically saying this is leading us to censorship and to people being silenced. And here you are having had positions of for lack of a better term, power and influence in the Jewish community, leading mainstream Jewish organizations. And, and you can say nobody silenced you. You're you're here. 
Well, I wasn't. I wasn't able to say what was on my mind during those times. Right, I mean, but uh, I, nobody is able to say a hundred percent of what's in yeah. their mind. I mean, I sometimes do, and I get in trouble for it. But, <laughs> but, but I take it as part of the job. I, nobody can say a hundred percent of what they want. Like there is no of a difference not. between that and censorship. Nobody told you you can't be here because you're anti-woke. So. I could not really speak my mind in a fundamental way, even raise concerns about how the ideology was affecting the deliberative process in the Jewish community. And I, I had tried to do that. I'd said, I'm right. worried that we're really not debating and discussing these issues in an open way around concepts like equity, which all of a sudden popped in our vocabulary. And I raised many concerns about that. I also saw people in my own community who had dissenting opinions being really bullied by Jewish professionals. And, you know, for me, one of the breaking points was when Ira Sheskin and Arnold Dushevsky, two very well-respected Jewish demographers, were pilloried in a petition for daring questioning the number of Jews of color that came out of a study that I thought was very flawed. And I was under a lot of pressure to sign that petition and didn't do so. And I heard key figures in the Jewish community accuse them of white intellectualism. And I right. thought that bespoke a problem. So yes, yeah. I'm not saying it's a it, it always serves to shut down every idea or every thought that I've ever had, but I thought I could do more being in a different role in protecting our community and, and doubling down on liberal values. I mean, it's a little bit like with woke, right? We don't have a definition of what cancellation really is. People accuse you on Twitter, just silence the feed. That's not being canceled. Just oh, block them. It's been canceled, right. Dashevsky and, and, and Cheskin, uh, which, by the way, they were unjustly criticized, but nobody, they didn't lose their job. They didn't. Well, you don't, you don't know that. For example, you don't know what business they didn't get because they Fair. were now being perceived Fair. that way. Fair, but I'm, I'm not just the, the the word you're using the word cancel, but you're not using its follow up, which is cancel culture. In other words, my problem, yes, there's cancellations there are very blatant and ugly cancellations. But to me, the, the real issue is, is censoriousness is to what degree are we able to have conversations? To, to, right. Sort of how do you the many things that you that you say, I would like to have a conversation about this, but I won't go there because I don't know if it's okay to say that. No, somebody can say, you do that every day. Uh, There's things that you would like to tell a friend and you don't because you don't know how it's going to be perceived. The question is when it becomes so pervasive that you can't, that you can't really have important conversations about things that are critical for society that you're, you're not discussing because you, you, because you can't. I was talking a lot about with a friend and a colleague of both of us about the the idea of harm that is used as a way of stopping debate in a way. Yes, that's a moral framework that has become increasingly popular. It's sort of another layer of censoriousness, another weapon I worry in shutting down the conversation. So let me give you an example of how that plays out. Um, When the reporter at the New York Times, the science reporter, very well-respected Don McNeil, had used the N-word in a private conversation with students in a way that was critical of somebody else who had used it, but he just spoke it out loud. He was investigated by the newspaper and they they said, well, he didn't intend to hurt anybody on that. And he was let off the hook actually originally, but then a group of 150 uh, New York Times staffers uh, wrote a letter to the publisher saying that it's not the intent that matter. And you taught us that in our DEI training. It is the harm that was done to us. And that's saying that because we are marginalized communities, you cannot and should not say anything that we perceive as harmful. 
I think that quote unquote is harmful. Now, of right. course, you know, we can look at the impact of statements and we can ask ourselves whether it's a good thing to say X, Y, or Z, but that can't be the dominant moral understanding of for how we express ourselves, because a lot of times there are unpleasant things that we need to say that are right. important for the conversation. But in that example, and I find that example a lot, that if the leadership, if the editor would have said, you know what, I hear you, I feel for you, sorry that it caused you harm, I think it was a legitimate debate, sorry. The, the thing would have, would have stopped there, right? Exactly. Meaning, meaning how many of these things are really a problem of leadership, right? When the leadership is sort of coward into believing that if they don't submit, like, in other words, it's not a Twitter mob. A Twitter mob, as I said, you can silence it. You mute the conversation, though, you forgot about it. It's whether leadership will use that and will will be afraid of that, really, is a matter of leadership courage, rather than yeah. saying, you know what, this is a legitimate debate. You think it made you harm, we can debate it. So, so yeah. I wonder if that's the real problem, not the Twitter mob, well, but the leadership. Yeah. Look, I think moderates in general sort of are easily cowed by extremists and that we've got to build up the the courage of moderates. Um, You know, moderates tend not to want to get dirty in a fight. You know, there's that old saying, never wrestle with a pig because you'll get dirty and the pig likes it. And what happens is that becomes sort of the modus operandi of a moderate, right? We go through, we don't want somebody to call us a racist or say that we've harmed them. And so we don't stand up for our our principles. And in a sense, we abandon the public sphere to both the far left and the far right in doing that. Because the far right will stand up and say whatever it's on its mind. And the far left will as well. And what I worry, and one of the things that we haven't really talked about yet, is that I worry that this discourse in particular is extremely dangerous in its exacerbation of tendencies on the far right. You know, in other words, you know, white identity politics is a lethal force. And if you're going to empower everybody else in expressing their authentic identities, to think that that's not going to create a response on the far right, I think is very naive. Um, You know, if you're a poor white person who's growing up in Steubenville, Ohio, and not only don't you have a job in the manufacturing sector, but your father doesn't have a job in the manufacturing sector, and and you're an opioid infested area and so forth, and you're told that you have privilege, even if someone says, well, of course, the black person in Steubenville has it worse, your response is going to be to give them the big middle finger. And you're going to view that person as a supremacist. Right. And one of the things that I'm actually saying, I'm I'm getting more and more confused by the terms left and right. And by the term, the term conservative and liberal, like there's nothing less conservative than telling a woman what she can do with her body to include sort of government overreach to tell you what type of birth control you can use. It's it's insane that people say that that's a conservative value. And I right. grew up in left-wing movements in Latin America where we thought that critical attitude, you know, was key and reading Paulo Freire and the pedagogy of the oppressed, that we always had a doubt what you're told. And, and the left being dogmatic for me is mind-bending. But I'm wondering if it doesn't all come from the same conceptual universe. In other words, when extreme wokeists are going to tell you that objective knowledge is impossible, is not different than Trump telling you there's alternative facts. Well, there aren't alternative facts. Facts are the facts. And science is science. But it is as though postmodern philosophy created certain ideas on the left mm-hmm. and then the right weaponized them. Right. Or mimics them in a way, in its own way. Rather, uses them to get to power in a much more effective way than the left. 
Well, see, I think it's a different kind of power. And a lot of times the left sacrifices political power in order to achieve institutional power. Or cultural to, power, rather. Cultural power, right. But I would argue that they realize, for example, that they can maximize their say in a particular institution that might fundamentally be alienating in front of voters at the polls. That's what they choose. And the right tends not to do that. Um, so you're dealing with two different kinds of power that are sort of competing against each other, which is why we have the contest between, let's say, Ron DeSantis and, and the university postmodernist bureaucracy. I, and I think that it's almost inevitable, which is why in accordance with the my own backyard principle, which is the left, I'm trying to get my own backyard to restore its own liberal values and sanity so that it doesn't further exacerbate the culture mm -hmm. war. But this is something that you and I sparred over, which is you're saying, yes, it's the anthropology department in Stanford is doing what it's doing. But then you have examples like the Santis where, in fact, the power of the state is being used to foster sort of this sort of illiberal goals of, of canceling, you know, or of excluding certain disciplines. So in my opinion, using the power of the state is way worse. I mean, the coercive force that the state has, the level of actual objective power that the state has is way bigger than a group of, you know, woke professors in Stanford. Yeah, I, I don't entirely agree. Um, I Obviously, I am concerned about the use of state power for censorship. But there are two problems, not one. There's censorship and indoctrination. And both are, by the way, using state power. Indoctrination is using, you know, K through 12 schools to indoctrinate a very specific opinion in young people. That's a problem, too. So if you ask me, by the way, what would I prefer? Would I prefer that my son, who's 17, and I have a stepson who's 18, both seniors in high school, would I prefer that they not learn Nibiru X candy because it was outlawed or they be indoctrinated in Nibiru X candy? I would prefer them not, not to learn it than be indoctrinated. Now, that's not a defense of Ron DeSantis because what I really want is for my kid to learn Ibram X. Kendi and to read the critique of Ibram X. Kendi. Let him read John McWhorter or Glenn Lowry or so forth. That, to me, is a liberal education. That's going to challenge them. Yeah, but you you go from defending the right of neo-Nazis. Like, in other words, you say it's okay for neo-Nazis to march in Skokie, but not for Ibram Kendi to be taught in school. Wait, wait a second. The, the right of neo-Nazis to march in Skokie is a First Amendment protected right. That's a legal right. No, I know. It's not the same, but conceptually, you're saying... It's not breaking any laws to indoctrinate kids necessarily. Maybe it is in some cases, but it shouldn't be breaking any laws to indoctrinate kids. It just should be something that we oppose as Good. a society. I don't want my kids to be taught who's oppressed and who the oppressors are, because I think that's highly illiberal and usually wrong or partly wrong. I guess that my point is going to, to another thing that that is sort of a, a, a critique that I hear a lot towards your work. Frankly, I, I even sometimes voiced, which is it's totally fine to focus on the perceived illiberality on the left. At the same time, the illiberals on the right or the so-called illiberals on the right, they actually are in many instances in government. It's like, what, what is the most urgent thing, right, to work like the cultural change of illiberal values that are being seeped into the school system is a problem. But at the same time, you have actually Marjorie Taylor Greene as the most influential people in Congress, as insane as that sounds. By the way, you, you do have a line on your book saying, well, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not so influential. Well, I said that Marjorie Taylor Greene has no influence on the Jewish community, but Ibram X. Kennedy does. Uh, 
I wouldn't be so sure. Okay. Like right. so I, has- I get a lot of I got a lot of messages from Jews that say, you know what, she's right. And uh, on the basis, she's right. Yeah, she's crazy, yeah. but she's right. Look, I'm not telling anybody that they shouldn't find it. I wrote an opinion piece months ago condemning what Ron DeSantis was doing in Florida by trying to outlaw right. CRT. True. Yeah. So it's not that I'm I don't see the problem. It's just that I go back to the my own backyard principle, right. which is to say, look, I can affect, I think, somewhat the discourse mm-hmm. on the left. And I want to work with other people who want to affect the discourse on the left. So it is a more rational, comfortable, sane place to be. I think at least one political party should be sane in America. And I want my own to be sane. And I want right. it to do the, the least possible damage uh, in terms of how the right sees the left as well. So that's why I focus my efforts there. Doesn't mean that I don't have very, very serious concerns about anti-liberal, illiberal and anti-democratic trends on the right. I do. Um, as Jonathan Greenblatt talks about anti-Semitism on the right, like it's a hurricane yeah. and global warming or climate change. Yeah. And I would say, yes, I agree with that. One is slower moving and corrosive and one is an immediate present danger and is violent in its effects. And that's an important distinction. I would also, by the way, say that what he doesn't do is he doesn't talk about the ideological CO2 emissions that are producing the climate change on the left. And I want us to be able to have that conversation. If you ask me, what do I want to accomplish in the Jewish world? You haven't exactly asked me that yet, but I'll I'll presume you will. It's to get the Jewish community to wrestle with that. You don't have mm-hmm. to agree with me on, on all of it, but to at least have the conversation around whether or not this ideology, which has seeped into institutional life, cultural life, is having the effect of exacerbating anti-Semitism on the left. Right. In a very weird way that will have real effects to the Jewish community over time. And so that's what I want us to do. It's not that it's saying that and arguing that says nothing about how right wing ideologies are affecting anti-Semitism on the right. I mean, the great replacement theory, the idea that, you know, ordinary Americans are being replaced by immigrants and Jews are doing the replacing. That's a real danger as well. And obviously I mean, that, that costs lives already. That costs lives. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a threat that Jews are going to be systematically disenfranchised over the long haul if there's no waning of this ideology. I mean, I, I agree with you that there is a place for this wrestling that is very important. I think that we need to look at that within a mosaic of different efforts that fight different aspects of the liberal culture in both the right and the left and and what have you. So I don't claim to represent every single problem. I'm trying to become a voice of a specific problem and Mm -hmm. make sure that that's part of the ecosystem in the Jewish world and outside the Jewish world. Again, I know that we have other fish to fry and that we should fry them. But that doesn't mean that this isn't a huge problem as well. And and I want us to be focused on this as a huge problem. And this is mainly the um, the goal of the Institute for Jewish Liberal Values. Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Yeah, yes. sorry. Yeah. Um, there are real and present dangers that are not necessarily violent. You know, we had this curriculum come out of California, this yeah. ethnic studies the model ethnic curriculum. Studies, yeah. Now, the curriculum itself, even the version that passed, not the original anti-Semitic version, states very explicitly that we live in a you know oppressed versus oppressed society and really lifts up that binary. And if you ask me, that's a recipe for anti-Semitism ultimately. It's it's putting forth an ideology, particularly in the realm of ethnic studies, that's going to right. lead to viewing Jews in a certain way and certainly Israel in a certain way. And of course, now with all these 1,500 school districts in California, many of them are starting to adopt the 
the quote unquote liberated ethnic studies model, which holds that Israel and America are settler colonial estate. And you see that in several school systems now outside of California that are adopting that as well. And so I worry that like we're going to wake up in five years and school systems around the country are going to be studying ethnic studies in a way that portrays Israel and Jews in a very specific way. That, to me, is really dangerous. So conditioning a group, a a generation of young people to think a certain way about us and about Israel. Incredibly dangerous. But the, the question is. What's the best way of fighting that? I mean, you want to have the conversation. You don't want to do the actual fighting, but I, I want to do both. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. Right. Right. I, I sh- I sh- maybe I should only pick one, but I, I want to have the conversation in the Jewish community. And at the same time, because unfortunately, I don't think enough of the mainstream Jewish community is really taking a strong enough stance against this. They don't want to burn their progressive allies in the process that I feel that we have to then form a coalition, which is what we're doing. We're forming a multi-ethnic coalition to counter radical ethnic studies. There seems to be two schools of thought in the Jewish community, and you you probably know that from your days at the JCPA. There is one that says, well, let's work, let's build allies, let's build bridges, find people, you know, influence the conversation gradually and little by little. Let's not alienate potential allies. And there is another one that says, no, let's go and fight Sue and OPEDs and demonstrations. And and I, working with funders, are a little bit confounded, but okay, what's the most effective way of doing this? And it depends so what, on what you're willing to live with and what the price of admission is. But the question is not, I mean, th- that's the question I try to shift. It's not what makes you feel good. I mean, yes, it would make me feel good to do a demonstration in front of the California governor's house, but is it effective? But what are we trying to stop? So let's, there are mainstream institutions in California, especially, that are doing their best to so, sort of work within the system, mm-hmm. get rid of the most extreme anti-Semitic references and so forth. But as a price of admission, they have to accept the overall ideological framework, which is that, uh, you know, America is fundamentally an oppressive capitalist country. If you don't believe me, I will read you. No, no, I do. I do. I, I'm, yeah. Curriculum actually say, I mean, they, they, they're that explicit. And I'm worried about that. That that's what they're willing to do. And I and I'm not willing to do that because I think that ultimately leads America and the Jewish community down a road that we don't want to go in. And so what I think we have to do then is find new allies who are willing, and we're doing that, Chinese Americans, Indian Americans, Black Americans, and others, who don't like this ideology, who don't think it's the right thing for their kids, and who want to work with us in countering it. Now, that is a trade-off. Without a doubt, it's alienating people that you've spent a lot of time, you have a lot of sunk costs in. And yet, to me, there are certain fights that you have to fight because they're they're so fundamental to Jewish dignity. They're so fundamental to our standing in society. And they call the question. The question has been called in ethnic studies. And I think for mainstream Jewish leaders, they're going to have to ask themselves, what kind of America do they want to live in you know, 10, 20 years from now? Right. And if it's not the America that views America as fundamentally oppressive and Israel as a settler colonial state, then they're going to have to find some new allies to try to realize it. But yet again, in the immediate, put yourself in my shoes, yeah. a funder comes to you and said, listen, there is one organization that says we're going to we're going to take a moderate approach. We're going to try to negotiate. We're going to try to talk. We're not going to make name and shame. We're going to try to 
And there is another one who's going to go hard and we're going to play hardball and do use any tool we need, public shaming, lawsuits, etc. What do you think it's more effective? And I'm, it's yeah. not a biased question. I'm really asking. I actually don't think that's what the strategic distinction is. It's not between hardball, nasty tactics, you know, in diplomacy. It's between whether you're going to go along and try to negotiate with the school system at the price of buying into the ideological frame or whether you're going to oppose it. So I have no interest in. But if you oppose it and you don't obtain anything, I plan on obtaining things. Sometimes people will tell you, listen, you know, I know this is not a great thing, but being realistic is the only thing that I can obtain. If I not, I can fight and right. I can demonstrate. And then, right. and and the and the ethnic studies curriculum is going to go through in its worst possible form because I didn't negotiate. Look, this there's there's a bet being made here, and my bet would be that we can build a multi ethnic coalition. We're doing it. We have those allies already. Yeah. They've been affected, by the way. They stopped some of these people stopped the San Francisco school system from you know changing the names of schools and. Um, you know, this was the recall of three school board members in the yeah. most progressive city in the United States. So yeah. I think we have allies in these places, and I think we can't afford not to. In five years or 10 years, we're going to wake up to a very different reality. It's already happening, and, and I and I fear that. So I think we have that's the right bet to make, is to oppose this. I understand that others are on the other side of that. I think they're not going to like where it ultimately leads. Maybe we'll fail too, but I think ultimately if we fail, it's, it's a sign that that we're not able to build a new democratic understanding of America, which, you know, I, I call it patriotic pluralism. It, it's to be both committed to this country and its, its ideals, but also pluralistic. I think the right tends to be patriotic and not pluralistic. And the left tends to be pluralistic and not patriotic. You know, I want to well, I don't know if the left is that pluralistic, but yeah. Fair enough. And, and or the right was that patriotic. Or, or the right uh, is patriotic at all. Like it's right. the blame America first uh, caucus. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But but I think we have a huge stake in that ideal winning out. And yes. I th I think that we we have to be willing to fight those fights in the long term, even if it means giving up something in the short term. So that's why I believe we need to go with a different option, different strategic option on, on ethnic studies in particular. Talking about new coalitions, I'll go back to something that is really obsessing me these days, which is a political realignment. You know, we were talking before about how left and right are being misused. I mean, I look at a guy like, you know, Macron in France. You know, he got voted in by classic liberals from the left and from the right. Mm -hmm. And illiberals from the left and from the right voted Le Pen. In other words, I'm wondering if a complete change of our political discourse isn't in order. Like, look at the government in Israel, for example. It's, it's called a right-wing government, and yet its political, its economic policies are socialist. <laughs> you know, the, the most far right you are, the more socialist your policies and subsidies and etc. Things like, you know, government overreach in many aspects. Now, I'm not, besides my personal opinions on that, I'm, I'm talking about a conceptual construct of calling that right wing uh, and how that complicates the conversation. It does. I mean, we, we've always had a process of political sorting in this country. That's what political scientists call it, a kind of tribalism. And I think that's the case everywhere. But I do think we should push for a kind of political realignment, that the most important issues facing us are not 
public policy issues, but they're the question of what our fundamental political ideology is. Are we a country right. that allows for people to have conversations, to debate, that believes in scientific inquiry? Or are we a country that's going to embrace sort of whatever radical dogmas come from wherever they come? And I I worry that we have a huge stake in the latter. And I think for too often, we're willing to sort of tactically sacrifice that larger need for Mm -hmm. us to live in a democratic society, liberal democratic society, in order to get our our half loaf in the immediate term. And I think that's a mistake. I think the Jewish community needs to go through a very open, thoughtful, strategic reassessment and and ask ourselves again that question what kind of america do we want to live in and who should we be working with and partnering with in order to achieve it right one issue in which the roles were actually inverse between you and i was in the conversation about israel and the jewish community you were actually more liberal than i was you said certain things about israel should be allowed in and i was saying no but but i was saying no not because I think people shouldn't have the freedom to support BDS, but because Jewish organizations are not academic institutions where the goal is to find truth. The goal is to build a community around certain values. You can call me censorious for not having somebody advocating BDS at the Jewish Founders Network. No, but I, I, I agree with you on that. I'm not arguing that Jewish organizations should have embraced BDS. I don't think that's the case. The organizations have the right to define their mission and their scope and everything else. The question for me is, you know, you hear this a lot, and Jews alone get to define anti-Semitism. And I think that's that can be problematic. We have the right to push for a definition, like the IRA definition, that allows governments to study trends, that allows the FBI or law enforcement agencies to assess intent. Do they intend to commit a hate crime or do they intend something different? That's how the IRA definition can be helpful. And if if the majority of Jews should want to push for a single definition, that's great. We can do that. But does that mean that anybody who questions the IRA definition should be shouted down or pushed out of the conversation? I think the answer to that is no. I think that we should be able to question, people should be able to question the definition of anti-Semitism, just like I should be able to question the definition of racism. You talk a lot about being open to new ideas and sort of being intellectually curious. And I think that's a good framing, actually, as an aside. I think that the framing of intellectual curiosity could be a good one, as, you know, curiosity can be an antidote to dogmatism. So... Is there a salient case in which you change your mind by being intellectually curious about something that you really believed and you thought it was? All the time. I mean, there are a lot of times when people convince me of things. Um, I, In fact, in some ways, my stubbornness on maintaining liberal values is because I want to know when I'm wrong. Maybe I believe that Systemic racism is not as pervasive as others believe. Doesn't mean I don't think it exists. But if you make a case for why I'm wrong and you make a very compelling case, then I've now learned something very important. Um, Yet if I'm not able to question you because you've already determined that the issue is settled and that it's everywhere and that it defines all disparity, then I'm being deprived of the ability to rethink my position. So I think I changed my mind all the time. Even this morning, someone made a very good point on, on Twitter that I thought, OK, maybe I should rethink that. And it raised a question that I didn't have before. So I think that's what a healthy conversation looks like. It allows you to do that. 
take out the natural toxicity of an environment like Twitter and the trash talk and, and the snark and all that. Like I'm sometimes surprised about some of the things that you say that they generate such a visceral, aggressive reaction from people that are thoughtful. And and just yesterday I witnessed a conversation like, what do you think it is in what you say that sort of triggers these people to be so aggressive? What are you threatening there in terms of their mindset that brings them to react so much? Yeah, I ask myself that question a lot. Sometimes even people, by the way, who generally agree with me, I find that in their discussions with me, there's still some some level of snark. But that's the medium that I understand. Right, right, I use right. snark a lot. I mean, here no, we're no, talking. I know, about- but but it, it's a different tone of conversation, even with people right. who agree with me. Sometimes, I would say that a you know I come from the left that ideologues are fundamentally trying to control the conversation on the left. I don't think that they're trying very hard to win over. America writ large. And so somebody like me who comes who says, well, I do think we need to be able to discuss gender affirming care, or we should be able to discuss other reasons for racial disparity than just systemic racism or the like, that that threatens the primacy of a certain group of people. But I think if there's something deeper within the Jewish community, especially, it's that people in the Jewish community in America, and I don't think this exists in other diaspora communities to the same degree, is deeply aligned psychologically with the left. And it's find safety on the left. And when someone like me comes along and says, we have a problem on the left that we really need to take seriously, I think I threaten that sense of equanimity that they felt and that and that they want to strengthen. So maybe they see some of the same problems that they don't want to they don't want to bring them to the surface because they want to find comfort ultimately in those same coalitions, those same alliances that they built over many years. Mm-hmm. So I, I think of it this way that, you know, I, I went to speak at a synagogue uh, a few months ago. And um, it went off without a hitch, not a single heckler. There are a lot, you know, these are mostly liberal people I was talking to. Yeah. And a few days later, the rabbi comes to me and he says, apparently you have some detractors. I said, oh, tell me something I don't know. And he said, I, he was on a call with other rabbis. Uh, and they were talking about anti-Semitism. And when he tried to raise the issue of my thesis around wokeism and anti-Semitism, he was really shouted down by the facilitator and other people in the room. And I realized when I started to look at who the gatekeepers are, it's not that they're all a bunch of ideologues who think what I'm saying is so beyond the pale. It's that they're trying to protect either their institutions from the acrimony that would erupt if if we actually had an open conversation around them and or probably and they are trying to prevent this from alienating their institutions from their progressive allies. You mentioned this business of protecting their institution. And one aspect that doesn't get talked about, I mean, yes, Felicia Herman wrote an amazing article about Jewish professionals afraid of being fired all the time. But both you, I, we generally can say what we think and we work in places that give us that freedom. The the problem is not that. The problem is the enormous energy and time that goes into that. In other words, sometimes I, I find myself not saying things or just sugarcoating it so much, not because I'm going to get in trouble, if say, but because the time and energy that is going to take me to fight the vitriol is just not worth it. And therefore, I find myself abandoning the field. By the way, right. on both sides, eh? I mean, I may want to say something yeah. or bring a speaker to the conference that, you know, have something interesting to say, but it's not kosher for either the left or the right. And I just say, you know what, Enlikoch, I don't have the energy to fight it. <laughs> And we're all the porter because of that. I think there are a lot of people who are in segments of the Jewish community where they really can't speak. 
speak their mind. It's not just a matter of dealing with the additional headaches that they might face. Um, you know, if you're in the advocacy space, especially, you may be reluctant to, to address these issues or you may just be silent in the face of criticism. You know, there have been instances recently where somebody put in a listserv, a professional listserv, a Jewish advocacy listserv, that uh, I should be invited to speak and to have the conversation in their communities. And there was a lot of people who were very strongly expressed opinions that absolutely not. Now, if you're the if you're somebody who believes that they should have the conversation and you're worried about the discourse, you may not want to chime in that conversation. A few right. will, but a lot are just intimidated by that the vociferousness of that political camp. Hold on one second there. So you're intimidated, okay? So don't be. <laughs> Meaning what I'm trying to say is that this is like trigger warnings. In, in college, right? Oh, there's going to be a topic that are going to offend you. Get over it. That's what I'm in the business of doing. I mean, I just wrote a piece yesterday out of the courage business. We can't promise people that we're going to create for them a space where they're always going to be absolutely 100% comfortable saying what they said. There's going to be moments of discomfort when they say what they believe, and that's okay. And they have to learn how to deal with it rather than pretend for us to create a friction-free environment. The same way I tell my my son when he goes to college, there's gonna be things that you're gonna hear that are gonna upset you and deal with it. That's life. Yeah. I mean, I hear stuff that's, that upsets that's me how, every day. Right. I train my kids the same way around the Shabbat dinner table, you know, yeah. and um, but the onus is also on the people who are doing the very aggressive politics too. It's not just on the people who are scared. You know, we want to create a culture. Free speech is not just a law or a set of laws or a First Amendment, it's a, it's a culture right. that is healthy for society. So I want to do everything we can to create that culture. So that means putting some of the onus on the people who are afraid to speak and, you know, strengthening them and giving them some backbone and encouraging them and reminding them of great examples of people who have stood up for their values. And, um, and also to the people who are so willing to use very aggressive politics to, to right. silence others. And, and they may say, oh, we're not really silencing people when we do that. You are. You are. You're creating a culture of eggshells. And I don't want a culture of eggshells. I want a culture uh, that's that's open. And of course, it's never going to be totally open. And of course, it's never going to be penalty free. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to move the direction of the conversation to one that allows for maximum conversation. I was in an argument with Peter Beinart about, he was attacking me about why we don't debate him. And I said, because there's no debate, there is rhetoric, meaning a debate is when you're open to change your mind. None of us are, in, meaning he thinks what he thinks about Israel. I profoundly and intently disagree. And I think what I think about Israel. And for me, that is non-negotiable. So what am I going to debate? So I think that in the Jewish community, there is a little bit of that methodological discussion between debate and rhetoric. We're doing rhetoric. We tell ourselves that we're doing debate. Yeah, that could be. And look, there are gray areas here, right? Like yeah. To what degree should a mainstream Jewish figure debate somebody who doesn't, not only critical of Israel, which is fine, but believes that the country is illegitimate, which is not right, fine. Right, which is, which is right. goes to back to my, to my previous point, which is, I'm not maybe in an academic debate. You need to you need to have voices like that, not at the Jewish organization whose values, whose Zionism is a key value to it. Right. So it goes back to the point of of sort of freedom of speech 
Yes. I mean, I'm not going to forbid Peter Biner from saying what he thinks. I just don't have to platform that within an organization that the same way I'm not, I'm not saying it's the same, but I'm not, I don't have to debate with a, with a Hulk of denier. Let's take it to a, a, you know, example on sort of the quote unquote culture wars. So yes, am I going to platform somebody who believes that at a, let's say a mainstream Jewish organization who believes that gay people shouldn't be married? No, I, I don't, I don't think that that's helpful. I don't think that that's yeah. a legitimate stance. And again, it wouldn't days. be a debate because it's not something that you are willing to change or compromise or amend. Exactly. Yeah. Do I think, however, that should, we should be able to have discussions about issue of policing that include voices that say there's not systemic racism everywhere in policing and um, or include uh, people who question whether or not all the disparities we're seeing in society are a function of systemic racism? Or do I think we should be able to have conversations about gender affirming care that are open and consensitive, by the way? And of course, we want to be sensitive as well, especially in these touchy subjects. I think we have to. These are important issues. They're not settled. People want to act like they're all settled. If they're settled, we're really in trouble. Because these are complex social dynamics, they're multifactorial in nature, and we have to be open to various interpretations and evidence and the like. Do you think that Jewish tradition has something to teach us in terms of how to have these conversations? Yes, I do. You know, my favorite phrase in, is machloket l'shem hashemaim, arguments for the sake of heaven. And um, the fabled uh, debates between the House of Hillel and the House of Shammai and the idea that Hillel went out because they were willing to cite the rulings of Shammai before their own rulings. I think those are really important ideals. Have we always lived up to them? Absolutely not. In fact, I heard stories of how the House of Shammai actually had certain members of the House of Hillel killed at one point. Um, So it's not like we've always lived up to our own high ideals, but I think the best of Judaism, the best of the Jewish tradition is extremely intellectually open. It's the layers of commentary in the Talmud. It's um, what many of us have grown up with, which is a kind of debate culture. You know, at my Shabbat dinner table, and I I, I don't think I'm, I might've formalized it more than others, but every Friday night I would pose a set of issues for my kids to debate. And I always play devil's advocate. And sometimes they wouldn't go along with my topic and they would change the topic. But that was sort of central to how I was raised in the kind yeah. of environment. I mostly, I, te- I, I mostly tell dad jokes and laugh at for them. Not laugh at uh, the jokes, laugh at me, but yeah. Right, right. But I would bet that there's been some fierce yeah. debates in these Pukoini households. Uh, there, there's been. Right. Actually, and, actually, a very, a very interesting debate was about a conversation. And I remember because it, it really marked me, like my one of my sons says, we had a conversation at school about whether the Industrial Revolution, all in all, improved or worsen the status of women in society. And I asked her, what do you think? He, he says, I think it's a little bit of both. On the one hand, it improved certain things. And on the other hand, it opened women for other types of, you know, industrial exploitation and the like. And, and I said, did you say that at class? He says, no. I said, why not? Because you don't talk about those things. You, you never say what you think about those things. Right. And that was like a wake up call for me saying, whoa, wait a second. Like we're talking about teenagers that have perfectly normal, moderate views on things that are afraid of saying them. It's a little bit dangerous. Yeah. Right. I wrote about my 17-year-old son. This was his junior year when he was asked point blank by a teacher what he thought the Black American experience was in America. And I said, what'd you say? He said, I said nothing. 
I said, why? He said, well, what I wanted to say was that I think black people are just as different from each other as white people are. But and you couldn't say that. No, I could not say that. And so I think that's unhealthy. That's what I'm critiquing in a way. I think it creates all sorts of dogma. and, And I think we should push back against that. And as Jews, especially, we should try to model it. Right. But, but going, kind of going back to that, going back to Jews, modeling it and Jewish, like one of the things that goes to the epistemic, you know, undergirding of much of the left wing and right wing liberalism um, is that sometimes it's hard to, to debate because it's it's sort of asymmetric warfare in the Talmudic debate, in the Jewish debate. The standards of debate were clear. Yes, Hillel and Shammai disagreed profoundly, but they all were subjected to the same standard. When you say I think that this halacha should be like this or like that. You wouldn't just pull it out of thin air. You had, or if you did pull it out of thin air, you had a fundamental it with precedent, with quotes, with text, etc. Now, the problem with debate is that all the time you're debating people that are not beholden to fact or the scientific method. It makes it very complicated. So my tweak to what you're saying about freedom of debate is, yes, freedom of debate to people that are subject to the same standards that I am. If not, it's just not worth it. Like, I'm not going to debate a conspiracy theorist, not because he may or may not have a point, but that's not the, the problem is that he's not beholding to the same standards today. He can he can spew out whatever he wants. And, you know, I can't right. falsify that ever. Yeah. And so you shouldn't debate him. Look, the best debates I have are with people like you who I might disagree with 10 percent of the time. Yeah. Right. Because because then I know I'm sharing some basic frame of reference. It can be very hard when you're talking about somebody whose worldview is so diametrically opposed to yours. Your basic epistemology or understanding of the world is so different that you can't really engage. But last night at MIT, there was a debate between people who supported the traditional diversity, equity, and inclusion, and people who are critical of it. They called it the great DEI debate. And, you know, there were thousands of people who watched this. So I think when we can stage a constructive debate, we should try to do that on issues where there's genuine differences. And I think the Jewish community can do much more of that than we have. Like, I don't think we're living up to our own role in society. I think our role in society in this day and age can be to create the spaces where the debate exists. And there are people agitating on both right. ends but, or trying but, to stifle. But wait, wait, wait. So, so to push that a little bit, yes, our role in society is to create a space for debate, but our role in society can also be to propose a set of norms for the debate, because that's my fear. We, we're going to be saying, okay, let's have the debate. And then you wasting it, really wasting your time debating people, like I was saying before, conspiracy theories, people that are not beholden to fact. I'm wondering if whether agreeing on the methodology could be the solution here. And any any opinion is valid as long as you arrive to, like any scientific theory is valid as long as you follow the scientific process. Yeah, look, I think that that's a good point, you know, and um, you're right. If if we don't have an agreed upon methodology, it's not going to be pretty or very often not going to be pretty or useful or useful. So we should try to do that. I'd be willing to work with anybody who, uh, especially those who have different opinions than I do on some of these issues on coming up with a common methodology. And I and I think that there are there are wide swaths of people in the Jewish world who agree with that. You know, one thing I've learned through this work is when I talk to people, they generally say, I appreciate what you're doing. I can't join you in that because I'm it would it would complicate my life too much or it would put me 
at risk or what have you. Sometimes I think that that's true. Sometimes I think they're overestimating the risks that they actually face. But I that's the general experience. You know, I, I've spoken now to many center-left, uh, mainstream Jewish institutions, synagogues, major synagogues. I was at Wilshire Boulevard Temple in LA. I just completed a trip to Detroit where I debated somebody in front of about 500 people. Um, I spoke to you know the boards of the mainstream Jewish institutions. I spoke to rabbis. And not one time have I faced really, really ugly responses. People are generally very interested and curious of discussing these things when they can. And they don't because space. because they are exhausted of fighting the crazies. You know, it's like Brett Stevens called the exhausted majority, you know. Right. And I think the exhausted majority is just going to have to find some more energy to have the discussion or we're forfeiting the space to the radical. To finish, what type of Jewish community and what type of country you would want your children, they're grown already, but your grandchildren then, future? I've got a couple that are still at home who haven't. How many do you have? I have two kids of my own and two stepkids. They're all, they range in 17 to 26. And um, yeah, so, and I have a lot of very rich conversations about these issues. Um, and they're all critical thinkers in their own way. Um, I, I want them to be able to both be committed to making society live up to its own high ideals, to be concerned about people who have less, but also to be able to debate and discuss those concerns in a way that that produces creative solutions. You know, you've written, Andres, about Takuna Lam and about how that's so central to the to our tradition. And I agree with that 100 percent. I disagree with conservative critics who are sort of who are critical of the whole concept of tikkun olam. But I want a tikkun olam that's inclusive, that allows people yeah. who are the market-based orientation to say, well, I don't agree with government programs like this, but I think if you did this, uh, if you had this market-based solution, we could we could lift people up. Uh, that's actually, the kind what, of I, what I wrote I about, about tikkun olam was that it is profoundly Jewish. The critique to the tikkun olam concept was when it's reductionist and when people say that's all that Judaism is. Right. But I'm also saying that Takuna Lam is a really important Jewish enterprise, but it's got to be ideologically diverse. Concentric circles of care, starting from exactly. your own and expanding out to the world. And allowing voices in who might have different solutions that you do. In other words, right. not reducing Takuna Lam to some favorite set of political ideologies, but rather to say, look, the political conservative who I may disagree with on many issues, who still wants to be involved in um, helping people with disabilities is doing Takuna Lam as well. Thank you, David. That was fascinating. Thank you. Thanks so much to David Bernstein. You can learn more about David's work at jilv.org. His book can be found wherever books are sold. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, about guests, ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. We're here to listen. Write us at communication at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter, where I continue part of my conversations with David at Atspokoini. I leave you with a quote from Cynthia Ozick, who said, the imagination is a species of knowledge, knowledge that can take the form of discovery. So keep imagining, 
keep giving and join us next time on What Gives.